Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, Matt Slater joins me to discuss the latest on Project Restart, with the championship set to return on June the 20th. With La Liga also ready to go again, we speak to our Spanish football writer Dermot Corrigan and ask him whether there's any chance of Paul Pogba moving to Real Madrid. And Fabrice Muamba, former Premier League midfielder and now an executive at the PFA, joins us to share his insight on what the players are feeling ahead of football's return. Make sure you subscribe and download the Athletic app if you haven't already. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman. So Premier League football returns on June the 17th. Meanwhile, La Liga will be the second of Europe's top five leagues to resume on June the 11th after the delay caused by the coronavirus pandemic saw the Bundesliga come back a couple of weeks ago, of course. We can now speak to the Athletics Spanish football writer Dermot Corrigan. Dermot, how has La Liga's project restart played out? Has it been similar to the Premier League's process? I think things have been quite different here in Spain, just from watching what's gone on in England and comparing the two. Here in Spain, things played out in a couple of phases. At first, it was quite chaotic when the games were called off and during those first couple of weeks, you know, there was a lot of of concerns around a, a lot of fears and there were big rows at that time between Javier Tebas at, at La Liga and Luis Rubiales at the Federation, including Rubiales calling for Tebas to be prosecuted for wanting to use scarce testing equipment on footballers and, and not with health workers. But but over time, it, it's it's come together and the government got involved as well, the sports minister, and she knocked their heads together. So by late April, more or less, La Liga had agreed to, to come back. The Federation took a step back and Tebas had, has got everybody into line towards what's been a pretty smooth restart plan. And people in Spain are quite happy to, for football to come back, maybe compared to in England where there were more kind of concerns, especially publicly amongst clubs and players. Tebas has kept everybody quite quite in line behind his plan to, to bring football back, to, to play those final 11 games on the pitch to save the Spanish football industry, uh, as we know. Yeah, that's quite interesting because I saw some interaction on social media between Steve Parrish, the Crystal Palace chairman, and Javier Tebas uh, a few weeks ago. And and Parrish being very vocal in wanting to get the Premier League season uh, completed. And and he liked what Tebas was saying. As such, were there clubs in Spain who were similarly opposed to the restart as we saw in the Premier League? All we've heard about in the Premier League in recent weeks has been the self-interest and and clubs towards the bottom of the league allegedly wanting to get the season cancelled, null and void, or at least relegation scrapped or in the event of a curtailment once play restarts, then relegation being taken off the table. Has there been similar infighting in La Liga? No, none at all. It's been remarkably quiet, really, because in Spain we're, we're very used to, especially with the bigger clubs, uh, you know, briefing against plans for, from La Liga or um, other clubs coming together to fight something that, that Javier Tebas has done. But it's been, it's been remarkably smooth, really, considering what was going on. And especially even, as you're saying there about the clubs down at the bottom, like I, I did a piece on Espanol for, for the Athletic and I was speaking to people at the club, including Juan Captavilla, who people might remember, who, who won the, the World Cup with Spain. And he was he was clear at the time that even though Espanol are bottom of the table, they're six points in safety at the moment, he was happy to play the 11 games, to win it on, on the pitch, to, to do all that they could to, to try to stay up. And there was no real feeling that, you know, when you talk to clubs off the record as well, that... 
people were kind of hedging their bets or or briefing against what was going on. Everybody fell into line really, really well behind Tevis, which Tevis is, a, from his personal views and his political views, sometimes you wouldn't always agree with him. But in this case, he has he's done a very good job of a figurehead behind which all the clubs have lined up. Real Madrid and Barcelona, we know, hold a huge amount of power in La Liga. They'll be keen to restart matches and, of course, to work out how to improve their squads in what's going to look like a very different and new marketplace once the window opens. Yeah, and neither club put up any barriers to the return, really, because they both had their their reasons for for getting the games played. They both want the money. Obviously, that you know they were talking about losing six hundred, seven hundred million euros. And both clubs, while they're amongst the richest clubs in the world, they need to keep the revenues coming in to keep things to keep things ticking over. Barca, especially, you know, at the time when uh, when things went into lockdown, there was a, a big row between the players. Messi led the dressing room against the president Bartomeu over the how the salaries were going to be cut and. and Club Barcelona didn't look so good out of that. Madrid as well are keen to get work done on the Bernabeu. So they have a big 600 million project to, to remodel the Bernabeu, to put a, a new sliding roof on it, to, to put a, a kind of a, a digital skin around the stadium. And they kind of, whether it was quid pro quo or not, they've kept very quiet about what's going on while being allowed to play games. Now when the Liga starts on, on July 11th, they're going to, or on June 11th, they're going to be playing at their 6,000-seater Alfredo Di Stefano Stadium. So, so both clubs have had their own kind of reasons to, to to step in behind what's been going on. I was reading actually that Spain might be looking to have supporters back in to stadiums sooner than we might have been expecting. That's a new one that just came out that Javier Tevez floated that idea last weekend that they could start by maybe allowing 30% of fans into the stadium. It all has to go through the through, through the health system in Spain because even sometimes the sports minister might be behind what what the La Liga are saying, but then the health ministry have come in at times and pushed them back a bit. It seems more like an idea that is being floated to see whether it will how it will work or not. It's still a long way away, October, and you know, making making such long term plans is difficult at the moment, given nobody really knows how the how the situation will go. But in fairness to to La Liga and to Javier Tebas, the things that they have predicted or the the, the plans that they have put in place have more or less gone as they had hoped so far. So. And Tebas and La Liga as well like to be seen as taking a leadership role, even as you're saying there with with uh, Steve Parrish having kind of complimented La Liga. La Liga were delighted with that, with the idea that that people in England were, were looking to them and were following their model. That's something that, you know, as maybe La Liga would see themselves as the Premier League's main competitor or biggest competitor for global fans, for, for TV deals, for sponsorship deals around the world. The idea that they're leading and that if they were to be the first to let fans back in, they will be they'd be happy to, to have that idea out there even if it if it doesn't come to to pass exactly as they say. What's the players' view been of this? There have been huge concerns in England, certain players voicing it very publicly, especially around issues such as BAME, return to training, well death tolls are still high in the UK. What about in Spain? Again it's something that has evolved over time. Maybe six weeks ago or so there were a lot of concerns. There was Fali is a, a player at Cadiz who are going for for promotion, he's a midfielder. There wouldn't be the highest profile name, but he became well known in Spain because he he did a couple of interviews where he refused to he said he refused to come back and play until there was a, a vaccine. Rafinha at Celta Vigo, who used to be at Barcelona, who people might know more, he also said on social media that that he wasn't going to come back until it was completely safe, until there was no risk. But generally, as as Spanish society has has got used to the situation, as things have started to to open up here, and as the numbers of of positive cases and deaths as well have fallen. 
people have, have generally like all of the players went back to to train you know even speaking to people around the players speaking to some of the players the people at the clubs there was a lot of trust maybe that the, the protocol was able was going to be able to protect them there were a few positive cases at the start but it, it has gone it has gone remarkably smoothly i think six weeks ago or so you know i would have been quite skeptical about whether they're going to be able to to get the games back or at least as quickly as they said considering how difficult things have been in spain and how the you know, pretty horrific in situations in some parts of the country. But the players, uh, as well as the clubs, uh, and as well as as everybody, more or less within the football industry, have have come in, come online behind what Tebas was trying to do. Danny Taylor wrote a piece in the Athletic on Sunday about the future of Paul Pogba. Do you think either Real Madrid or Barcelona will be in a position to afford him? Barca are definitely not in a position to to spend big money this summer on anybody. They're looking to hope to do maybe swap deals with different players. Coutinho is somebody who they would ideally like to be able to, to move on so they don't have to, to bring his wages back onto the wage bill. So it's it's unlikely that Barca are going to bring in any big established stars, I think, this summer. And I don't think that Pogba or a new midfielder is really on their list at all. Real Madrid, Zinedine Zidane last summer was really keen to, to get Pogba back. I remember being at press conferences where you know, Zidane is, is often quite reserve of what he says he, he you know doesn't like to give away too many lines to, to the reporters at the press conferences but he'd you know at the slightest inclination he'd go off talking about how how he liked Pogba as a person as a player how he was a, you know would add a lot to any team in the world which you know was was pretty clear that Zidane was doing his best to try to get Pogba to the club didn't work out that way Florentino Perez maybe had more reservations Madrid are, are holding on to their money to to try to hopefully sign Kylian Mbappe is the big one that they'd like to do probably not this summer but but over the next couple of years, any money that they come out of the, this crisis saved up to spend on a big name, then Mbappe is the one they'd go for ahead of Pogba. Yeah, it was interesting when I was looking into the futures of Jaden Sancho and um, uh, Timo Werner in a piece you can read on The Athletic. I found out that some conversation, some dialogue had taken place uh, between Real Madrid and Jaden Sancho's camp. I think it's quite open and it goes back many years, so it's no great surprise. But when I looked deeper into the issue, uh, the possibility, uh, I was told that no, Real Madrid wouldn't be looking at Sancho because if they are to spend big, it would be on Kylian Mbappe. So that that tallies very much with what you're saying there. You've also written about Maurizio Pochettino, an interview that he's done with Guillaume Balaguer. I, I found this piece fascinating and I urge people to go and have a read of it because Maurizio Pochettino goes into real depth about his own coaching, his work at Southampton, his time at Espanyol as a manager, previously as a player, uh, his philosophies, his team that he builds around him. And, you know, some people, Dermot, might view this as slightly arrogant. He says what he did at Southampton hadn't been done by anyone else in English football before. I know some people at certain clubs like Arsenal might disagree with that, given Arsene Wenger's impact, Manchester United under Ferguson. But tell us a bit more about what he's trying to say here in regard to his influence as a coach on the Premier League. It's a really interesting or a chat between between Guillermo and Pochino, who they know each other very well, going back to, to time in Spain at Espanyol that's on La Liga TV. And Pochino does, he has, he's somebody who certainly has thought a lot about different elements of what it is to be a modern coach, how, the, how football has changed a lot over the last 10 years since he was a player and even since he's become a coach and how the, I guess even himself, how the influence that he had when he came from Espanyol, from La Liga and moved to Southampton. And, you know, I remember when, when he came that there was a lot of controversy about his appointment because he and Atkins have been, have been at Southampton and people didn't know Pochettino that well when he came in. 
And, but he, he did make a, a really big impact with that Southampton team. And a lot of the, the players in that team went on to play for England as well or are at some of the bigger teams in in England now and have won Premier League titles or, or gone to the Euros with them. And Pochettino seems to take a lot of a lot of credit on himself and not just himself, but on his coaching team, the people who work with him, that he they're a very close knit group and he feels that, that together they were able to instill as well as tactically kind of ideas around leadership and around togetherness and what it means to to be a team at the top level and what you need to be successful. That rubs up against, I guess, that, that Tottenham didn't win a trophy during his time there, which people talk about as well. But he doesn't he doesn't see that as being the, the most important thing. It's more the, the ideas that he's able to get across, the relationships that he's able to build up and the way that people copied, as he would see it, that Southampton team, whether it's people talk about now about Man City with, with Guardiola and Klopp with at Liverpool and how they play the game he kind of feels that he got there first or he, he was a, a predecessor of them or a forerunner of what they then brought to the to English football People mocked Arsene Wenger when he said that finishing in the top four was the equivalent to winning a trophy or words to those effects but Pochettino says something quite similar in your piece Obviously I think if they had won the Champions League he might say that the, the Champions League is is the the best thing that, that ever happened to, to him or, or the players w- would feel that way as well but he, he really does seem genuine He's, he's quite a sensitive guy or quite a, a, an introspective type of a person. Maybe the, the guy who we see in post-match interviews or the, even the, the bits and pieces we get to see of him around when he, w- he was at Tottenham is maybe not a, not a complete picture of, of what he's like. goes into maybe areas of like management speak and psychology and things like that and feels that that's a, a really important way to get individual players to buy into the, the team ethos, to understand and to believe in what the the coaches are, are trying to get across to them and he feels that by doing that they become a lot better. He talks in the in the interview about liking rugby because he feels that in rugby that there's more of a, a collective ethos that individual superstars don't have as much of a, a profile or as much of a, an ego maybe and how he, he misses a little bit from his playing days when, when people more mucked in together. Another thing that, that comes across in the in the interview to, to add is that he, he doesn't mention Guardiola by name at all in the as he's talking, but he does say about how similar to with Southampton, how he he shook up the Premier League. He, he says that when he was Espanyol coach, that he had a similar impact on La Liga, even even ahead of, of Guardiola at Barcelona. And their their personal rivalry dates all the way back to their playing days uh, at Espanyol and Barcelona in the same city in the 1990s. The impression I got anyway from it was that maybe he feels that he doesn't get because Guardiola has been at, at higher profile clubs and has uh, maybe a better media image that he that Guardiola gets more credit that, that he doesn't necessarily deserve. Another thing that that means is that that rival with Guardiola means that he, he's often linked with the Real Madrid job at, at some stage down the line. So it wouldn't be a surprise to 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 see him at the Bernabeu at some stage. And every time he, he talks about his rival with Guardiola, it, it's lapped up here by people in the Spanish capital, people around the Bernabeu. Whoever is against Guardiola is their friend in, in many ways. I'll finish with a question about yet another piece that, that you wrote recently. And that was on Ferran Torres of Valencia, a, a young player who's been linked to the Premier League and a lot of our listeners like transfers. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, uh, Ferran Torres at Valencia, 20 years old. He's, he's probably Spain's best young player. Uh, he's, a, he's a big underage star with Spain, won the under-17 and under-19 Euros with Spain, scored goals in the in the final of the under-19 Euros a couple of years ago. So I spoke to, to his youth coaches at both Valencia and Spain to just find out what he was like uh, as a kid and what how he has developed to, to this stage. And it, it was very interesting to see how he's had a... He's a, he's a real home kid at Valencia, which I think is the reason that he's still there because other 
other similarly talented young youngsters, peers of his, were tempted away to, to Barcelona and Madrid and haven't come through the same way. But but now he's he's had a bit of a, a crux because he's only got twelve months left on his his contract with Valencia. Uh, and Valencia are been another club who were really badly hit by the by coronavirus. They already probably had to sell some players this summer due to their financial situation. So it's coming to a, a point where either Valencia can offer him enough money that, that he stays. I think ideally he would like to, to spend another couple of more years at least at Valencia. But there is the fact that he's out of contract or his contract's up in another 12 months. So Valencia don't want to, to potentially lose him for, for a small amount. So there's a, a bit of a... A battle going on between between Tarz's camp and Valencia over how this is going to end up, and I I know that there are other clubs, especially in England, who who are looking at him and who see him as you know he's he's not a typical maybe Spanish playmaker in the the Juan Mata or David Silva type type of a a schemer. He, he's much more physical. He's he's a bigger guy. He's he's around six foot. He's very very athletic, very um, good in the air as well, direct. And he, from speaking to to his his coach. Um, Underage, which Spain says that he'd be an ideal fit for for English football, and we know that that people at Liverpool and Man City have, have had a look at him. He kind of fit, especially uh, this is only my own impression, but but with the way that Liverpool like to play, with the the power that or the, the pace that they strike at, he he could be an ideal player for them. But again, it's going to come down to whether his camp and Valencia can reach an agreement for for him to stay. Dermot, wish you a buen dia, and thank you very much. Gracias, David. Talk to you soon. Well, on Friday, we saw the return of Premier League football penciled in. And on Sunday night, the championship followed suit. They'll be returning, if all goes to plan, on June the 20th, with the aim of holding the playoff final around July the 30th. The Athletics' Matt Slater is with me now. Matt, it came as a bit of a surprise, this announcement, to some clubs, in particular QPR, it seems. Yeah, very much so. They're claiming it was an appalling lack of consultation They've put a very strong statement out. There could be a situation here where we're reporting people being surprised by other people being surprised. (laughs) In the, in the, um, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only reporter who phoned up the EFL and as, you know, us and our colleagues have been ringing around the other championship clubs to just to work out, you know, are you surprised as well? Was this a bit of a shock? I think what I have learned is you know, perhaps the timing of the email. I mean, I think it came into our boxes at about 8.45 for a 9pm embargo. You know, it was a bit bit strange on a, on a Sunday evening, but, look, you know, uh, everything's strange at the moment, isn't it? The EFL board has uh, representatives, club representatives, uh, three from the uh, championship, I think two from League One and one from League Two. The the championship reps met with the EFL execs, so, you know, the chair and the non-execs and what have you. And, they and, you know, they, they, they discussed things they've been talking about for the last few weeks, you know, the next stage of Project Restart, you know, let's get going again. And the club reps, there are three of them, they are execs from uh, Bristol City, Reading, and who's the other one? Derby. Uh, you know, the clubs have been asked to feed through their, com- you know, feed their comments through these guys. And the EFL board felt that's what happened. So, you know, they felt they had some certainty. June 20th had been there, penciled in for a while. So let's firm it up. Let's move on now. They've been back doing the um, the socially distance training for about a week. Let's 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 push on now. We've already started our testing. We're going to start contact test uh, training this week. Premier League have cracked on or, you know, they've, they've certainly signalled their intention to crack on. Let's let's follow suit. So, I think there is a bit of a surprise that someone is so shocked and is so angry about this date. And the other clubs 
from what I am hearing, are sort of saying, well, you know, I mean, look, we, you know, perhaps on a Sunday night, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't quite expect to see it, you know, on our Twitter feeds and WhatsApp groups and what have you. But yeah, we, we, we've, we know that this was the date that's been, that's been sort of, you know, talked about for a bit. And look, clearly, if we're going to squeeze all these games in, uh, what is it, 108 games for the championship alone plus the playoffs? We've got to go, we've got to start soon. So yeah, I'm a bit I'm a bit surprised that QPR are surprised. Yeah, so I had a message from somebody quite high up at a championship club who are pushing for promotion saying that he actually agrees with them. And this is a club that wants the season finished, that the EFL are not considering the health of, of players who need proper preparation time. And then I had a completely opposite message from somebody in the same region of the table saying, we've all known about the 20th of June, let's get back playing, they're in good shape. And then I had a message from a player towards the bottom of the table saying, they're all back, they're all in good shape, let's get contact training and let's get these matches back on. It's no big deal at all. It's not an ideal situation, but we need to get on with it. And like you say, get this season wrapped up. So what are QPR's specific concerns? And and let's not forget, they're, they're in mid-table, so it's not so precious for them either way. Well, I think you're player sums it up none of this is ideal but you know we're we're professional football clubs you know let's let's start I mean QPR have talked about the preparation they think that you know three weeks isn't enough for for you know to ramp up to start playing particularly as we have discussed about the Premier League many times this is going to be a very concentrated period lots of games I noticed on the EFL announcement yesterday they have already sort of said for vote for approval by clubs let's go with the FIFA idea the IFAB idea of five subs and, and, and probably increasing our match day scores to 20 which the Premier League haven't got around to yet they're mindful of that pressure on teams pressure on players so QPR have said you know flagged up they don't think three weeks is enough look I, I get the impression that that it, it probably isn't. We've spoken to um, fitness experts, haven't we, who, who've, who've said that, you know, if in an ideal world, of course it wouldn't. We Everyone's now really aware of muscle injuries and the fact that the Bundesliga is, you know, three times as many injuries in the in the two or three rounds of, of games we've seen. It, it's it's going to be hard. It is hard. I mean, you know, you can, you can run on treadmills and you can do the Peloton machine, you know, till the cows come home. But there's something very, very, you know, unique about some of the muscles you're using when you are stretching and training and exploding into space and, you know, getting a sliding tackle in and all of that. You know, everyone knows that this is going to be difficult for players. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, why QPR have been so angry this morning. And you said they were mid-table, but this is the funny thing about the championship. Mm. They are mid-table. But they're six points off Preston. <laughs> you know, in Preston, they're in sixth place. You know, they, they've, they've been struggling. And uh, QPR's last game on March the 7th, they beat Preston. You know, QPR have got a six-game unbeaten run game. Now, I know that was ages ago. I know it was three months ago. But QPR, I wonder if, you know, for the last you know, a couple of months in the WhatsApp groups, they've been, you know, lads, we're, we're still in this. What's going on there? Are they appalled that... That they're going to miss out on his amazing chance at a run at the playoffs, or are they terrified they can be dragged into the relegation zone? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I was speaking to somebody at QPR asking that very question. They did touch upon the fitness issues and also the idea of this being so soon before plans around hosting matches are properly mapped out in terms of the logistics, the stadia, the security, uh, a subject we've heard a lot about in relation to Premier League action, fans congregating, a lot of talk in recent days about the potential of a second spike and the health implications. And I know people will point to members of the public congregating at beaches, protest rallies, but 
person I spoke to at QPR said this is something they've been talking about and are worried about. I did want to ask you about neutral venues in the Championship because we've not heard mm. so much about that there, whereas we have in the Premier League. Well, it's a good question. I, I don't think we've got a firm answer yet. We, the, the, you're right, the focus has been on the Premier League because they are a little bit further down the road, aren't they? I think the view amongst the clubs in the Championship is the same as the view among clubs in the Premier League, by and large, and that's we want to play our home games at home. This now is, is becoming a bit of an impasse, uh, certainly for some clubs and some games in the Premier League. We haven't got into the detail yet. I'm just throwing these out as examples. The game where Leeds or West Brom could clinch promotion or a team at the other end of the table gets relegated or if there are any kind of high profile uh, derbies I haven't looked at the fixture calendar so I, I don't know if you know if there are absolutely you know some nailed on derbies to come because the focus has been on the Premier League and and that debate has really been driven by this sort of Liverpool issue which I think you know is really annoying Liverpool fans and, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for them on that front um, and this this yeah I mean it, it seems to become to have become a real kind of stumbling block between uh, Mark Roberts who's the sort of uh, chief of the football unit and some of the safety advisory groups they are crucial the SAG uh, in uh, giving approval for a stadium to 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 host a game so we just haven't we're just not there yet I don't think we're there quite yet but look the debate the debate is going on in the background about the championship but it's very much sort of you know let let the Premier League try and win that argument with government with the Home Office locally that football fans can do as they're told they can be treated like adults and we don't need to panic. From speaking to people around the championship I'm aware that some clubs are completely ready for this and on board with the 20th and, and let's get going but others are more acutely concerned and before people think ah oh, they're just in relegation Maya they're not some of those that I've spoken to concerned that we've got to get this right when we come back because if we don't issues such as fans congregating at stadiums protocols within stadiums to make sure they're sort of biosecure environments etc and something goes wrong we could be delayed even further and that could start to affect next season which could be critical for people's livelihoods jobs around clubs and, and finances at the clubs themselves perhaps some of the alarm around the championship is that the 20th of june is is looming very quickly and a lot needs to be sorted out before then they do want things to be right in time for that and look hopefully they will if we're to move things on to another EFL issue it's testing because we received good news from the Premier League over the weekend with not a single positive COVID test in round four of testing but that wasn't replicated in the EFL there were 17 positive tests 10 of those coming in the championship none were conducted in league one seven positives of 135 tests mm. in league two which is around 10 percent um mm -hmm. does that just give us a little bit of caution around the efl's return and and or does it show it's an anomaly it's it's, quite, it's impossible to know i guess i mean yes to all of all of those bits in yeah. that one we should be very careful of you know, small sample sizes. But you're right. I mean, in your in your sort of previous bit, you were talking about, I think some of these other issues are probably what's driving a lot of the, just levels of concern really in the AFL. Because the Premier League just feels like there's been more focus, more conversation. Uh, it's been at a higher level. 
And they're just sort of wondering, well, hold on a minute. We It seems a bit of a rush now. Just because the Premier League is ready, does that necessarily mean that we are? I may, you know, maybe some clubs will be thinking, yes, 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 we're ready. But others might not. You know, others, others, you know, as you say, there's a huge range of resources as well. So that's definitely a part of this. I think the testing results are interesting. You're right. I mean, the Premier League, and I think this, this goes to show really, just if you take a very high level... Uh, with lots of resource approach to COVID-19, you can isolate, you can, and, and those numbers have been trickling downwards. They started very low in the Premier League, and that's because they're surrounded by good people who know what they're doing. These are highly professional people, you know, who can take instruction and will do as they're told. And, you know, you can get on top of this. You know, if you test regularly and you, you know, you're cleaning the work environment to the levels that they are, and you follow these wonderfully thought through protocols, this is safer than going to the supermarket or the garden centre. You know, this, I think, is the point that, that some people, some critics of football, sports rush back, if you like, that we're seeing kind of a two-tier thing. Yeah, great. It's great for sort of people with the money to do this. Of course, you can work safely. But for the rest of the population, it's not so easy. I think what we're, I think the thing about the EFL is it's almost a bit of a halfway house. I was not that shocked by the championship results. That's 1%. Basically, and 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 it wouldn't surprise me if it trickles down. Now we have this June twentieth date, and people start to really get concentrate, and the clubs really get on top of it. I think League Two—that's the interesting one, isn't it? You know, you do one hundred and thirty-five old tests, and seven of them come back, and it's just the playoff teams they're testing, isn't it? That's that's I think the point to make there. They're already testing the four teams that are going to contest the playoffs. You know, was it four from one club? Wasn't it four from Colchester United? I mean, that just says. I mean, it could just be bad luck. It could just be straight bad luck. You know, we need to see a few more of these tests. Or it could just be, look, guys, you know, you, you, your eyes weren't on the ball. You need to get on the ball with this. Well, I'll finish by putting you on the spot as ever. Where are we up to oh. on leagues one and two restart? Uh, where are we going this week? And um, oh, right. fr- fr- from a broad perspective of, of the EFL, will the championship have a big say in what happens in those two leagues or is it all sort of independent? It is all interrelated. So where we're at is there's a big meeting on Monday the 8th of June. The clubs in League 1, really, because League 2 have kind of made their decision. Uh, It does all need to go to the vote and be ratified, that decision, which is basically to follow the uh, EFL board's desired, recommended way out of this, apart from one thing, and that was to not relegate. The EFL board thinks that we should be promoting and relegating and we should be deciding the tables on points per game. And, and, um, you know, that is assuming if you don't want to play. League One is this complete mess where you have clubs that don't want to play, just want to call it a day, and you have clubs because the playoff picture is so bunched up and a lot of the bigger teams are there, maybe not even quite there, if you know what I mean. They want to finish, they want to get in the playoffs. League One's a mess. So they have until tomorrow to sort of come up with their their points, their observations, their ways out of this, their other plans. And then we go to... Then they get kind of, you know, five, six days to have a real think about it. And I think we're going to get a vote on Monday. Okay. well, we'll follow up with you on that. And in the meantime, I'll let you get back to following all of these Zoom meetings um, like they're going out of fashion. And we'll speak to you again soon. No problem. Well, now on the podcast, we've got an extremely special guest. We're joined by Fabrice Moamba, a former Premier League midfielder, of course, who is now delegate liaison executive at the Professional Footballers Association, the PFA. 
So he's the perfect person to talk to about what the players are feeling like in England at the moment ahead of the return to football in the Premier League and Championship and possibly also in Leagues 1 and 2. We wait to see on that. Fab, thanks very much for your time. As a former player, what are your thoughts on football returning after such an extended period of time away due to the COVID pandemic? There is a health safety of the players and also some of the players who or some of the players must have lost a loved one through this pandemic. So there's so many issues that you could have to look at it. But it seemed like people in a good frame of mind to get back going again. Can you take us inside your role a bit at the PFA and explain what level of contact you've had with players and how concerned are they or how happy they are? What are they saying to you? I usually deal with like the, the championship lads and, and to, 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 to an extent, the way they're very concerned someone will worried about is it are we going back too quickly and what's you know so many issues but once you you know once you visit the club and the Premier League and put out the protocol and what is required from the team and how they're going to go by training obviously there there has to be different phases the phase the first phase was two a week ago a week or so ago where they're only going to be training a certain number of players people be tested every single day once that phase was done properly and was completed properly and there was no negative and once you be found negative you, should, you will be out for I think a week or two that you won't be able to come into training ground and then you'll be tasted after two weeks then from there they will, they will see how your body reacted and I think most of the boys have been okay they've been you know some of them have been you know looking forward to get back and that was how the, the they had to look at it and once that was given a go ahead and it's been a, a positive conversation since to be honest. Many concerns remain, whether it be around testing or uh, fitness also. Do you sense that the concerns are more now around the fitness than the testing or still a bit of both? Um, I, I think it's a bit of both. I think because we've not had an activity for a long time. One thing I've guaranteed, you know, Dave, that first game, I'm not sure if you read it in Germany, there has been so many injuries, which is yeah. it's something that... It's going to happen regardless because you can't perform for six or seven weeks and get straight back in there in the deep end. So there will be a lot of hamstring, calf. <laughs> you know, you know, the first two <laughs> games, I think it will be like it will be like watching the preseason training, where you play in an empty stadium, and a, a lot of guys will you know run out of steam pretty quickly because they they didn't have enough time to get themselves together. And that's not to that's not the club's fault, anybody's fault. It's just that in a very unfortunate situation where we all, we all have to adapt to it. Yeah, because people are saying they should be given longer, but equally seasons net need to get completed by certain points. So it's a bit of a compromise and it, it's not going to be ideal for anyone, really. There's a lot of issues that will really pick up again. I'm sure you're aware of this come the 5th of June because that's when the players' contract finish. You know, and that's another issue that that has to be discussed going forward. There's a lot of things that uh, behind the scene that uh, the PFA we speaking to players and and players are, you know, how the club is gonna go by giving somebody a contract or are the boys kind of are they willing to 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 play to risk their own life in terms of injury, knowing that they don't want to be at a football club. So there's a lot of things that you know, that will unveil in the next couple of weeks once coming the 30th of June. Yeah, you mentioned the contracts. There are two players at Charlton, arguably their best players, who have said they won't be playing 
today. So that's pretty big news because Lee Bowyer is going to be without them because they don't want to pick up injuries ahead of their next move and it's going to affect their careers. Then in the Premier League, we've seen the likes of Troy Deeney raising concerns and Golo Kante, who has been training on his own because he's not comfortable. He doesn't feel that it's safe enough for him personally at this point in time, as I understand it, he's got concerns not so much about what's happening at Chelsea, more coming into contact with players from other teams on the pitch in competitive matches where he doesn't know what programmes they've been on. He doesn't know for sure what situation they're in. In regard to N'Golo, and also he's worried about his own health. You know, the number one health, the number one priority should be the player's health. And if he doesn't feel comfortable to do it, then that should have been forced at all. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure Chelsea have been understandable to N'Golo and just make sure that he's been looking after on that, that, in that department. Yeah, definitely. They have. And nobody can talk better about health issues than you because you clinically actually died on a, a field of play. And many people listening to this will know about that. Some people listening might not know about that. So if you were a, pre- a player now, how would you feel about returning, Fab? I think the Premier League has put out a statement, or some of the Premier League clubs said, if you don't feel comfortable to do it, then don't do it. You know, there's not a right or wrong with it. So if I don't, if my health is unconcerned and that is concerned, then I don't think I will be able to go out there and, and run around. Are you satisfied with the safety protocols in place from from the Premier League and, and the EFL? Yeah, from from from, from what I, I, I've seen, the guys have been tested every every, every single day, and from what I've, I've been hearing, it's been particularly going fine. What we've seen going on in the world at the moment is pretty shocking in terms of what's happening in the United States. And we saw Jadon Sancho score a hat-trick at the weekend and, and we saw his his shirt had a message on it that you know he got booked for uh, despite showing solidarity for a cause that so many of us would completely support him on. How do players feel about the issue of racism now you were a player you speak to players all the time Uh, we say enough is enough but what does that mean you know we we have a lot of initiatives you know kick it out and showing things on t-shirts but is enough being done can more be done how are black players and BAME players feeling at the moment in regard to Jaden Sancho taking off his shirt you know the laws of the game said you can't take off your top and you get booked for that, which is we all know that, and he know that as well. But I think it it gets to the point where you just say, "I'm happy to just take a booking." But it just it it gets to the point where they it just like when's can things gonna change? It's the George Floyd situation this time. Previously, it was something else. Before that, something yeah. else. You're right. It's been going on for so long, but we can only hope in the current and next generations for improvement. However. How difficult is it when we're looking at boardrooms, at Premier League meetings, and we're not seeing BAME people in the positions of authority? So when these Zoom meetings are happening with the Premier League and black players, for example, are looking for reassurance over the effects of COVID on BAME people, they're speaking to people from the Premier League who are not BAME or from the FA who are not BAME and I noticed that Jonathan Van Tam the professor uh, has really impressed players like Troy Deeney with his feedback but too scarcely within clubs and organisations on the board of directors or just in the management there is 
no BAME people. So how do these players have anybody who relates to what they're going through in the positions of power? And I think it's, it's all about opportunity and also try to make the, the field a, play, a level playing field. And those, that's, when, when, that's when those guys will feel more, you know, will feel like they feel like they want to speak to you. And I think that's why some players, they don't want to speak to you. That's one player, you know, the likes of Danny Rose. Danny's a nice guy. He's a nice kid, you know, but people just mis, misunderstand him. I just feel like he, as he even said himself, I can't wait to leave the game. You know, if a young player is saying to you that I can't wait to leave the game, then that definitely should be ringing an, an alarm bell. Regardless if you don't, if he's not your favourite player, but for him to say that I can't wait to leave the game, then it, it, it's a serious issue. Does it hurt you that when Jaden Sancho or Akimi at Dortmund also, Turam in, the, in one of the German games as well, make this stand in support of George Floyd or other causes previously and you don't see white players doing the same or to an even worse extent that when Liverpool players wore t-shirts in support of Luis Suarez when he faced a racism uh, accusation involving Patrice Evra, how does that make black and BAME people feel when Nobody is standing with them. Lewis Hamilton, he posted something on his social media in regard to Formula One driver, Formula One car drivers, just saying, I see you and you're not being active when we needed to be. You know, and that's Lewis Hamilton and he's the world champion. So everybody has a different stand in terms of how they want to see racism. But we all have to play our part. You know, we all believe in a big world, we live in the same society, we all have to respect each other. And I think... It would be helpful if one of the Caucasian players, or, uh, one of the lads from different background, come out there and, and speak about it, which to an extent they, they do, but not often enough. Fab, thank you so much for your time. No, no worries, Dave. I appreciate it. Man. Right, that's it. Make sure you subscribe and download the Athletic app if you haven't already. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.